Welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and today we're talking to an Aussie author who's just penned his uh, book um, called About the Luckier Country, talking about Australia. But I thought we'd have a little bit of a chat about the market first before we get into uh, Anthony. His name is, uh, he's coming up in a little bit. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, I went and looked it up. I couldn't actually remember, but uh, on May 10, we did a podcast saying, Be greedy when others are fearful, which is uh, teeing off the Warren Buffett, uh, the famous Warren Buffett quote, where he says uh, you know, something along, you know, be worried when people are greedy and be greedy when they're fearful. Anyway, I thought it was interesting to note that episode came out on May 10. As of now, the ASX 200 bottomed out on May 12 and has since rallied up 5%. So that was just a little example of trying to take advantage of when fear levels get really high in the market. Having said that, I don't want to um, over egg the pudding, uh, as some people say, just because it's still looking fairly shaky out there for the market to my mind. I saw a quote on Twitter recently saying that stocks hitting new highs uh, outnumbered by those hitting new, uh, new lows five to one. And that's very consistent with what I'm seeing. Really hard to, to get a, um, a, some good buys away lately, unless you're a day trader, um, which there's lots of volatility and things jumping around all the time. Um, not something that I've ever uh, had a crack at really, day trading as such. Um, generally mine are a little bit more longer term than that. So I just, I did think that was interesting to note. Um, Anthony Gill, the author that we're going to talk a little bit later, has written a book which is premised about two topics that I've spent a lot of time on, which is the property market and the credit creation of the banks. And that's really the financial system as it is. But I thought we'd touch on property a little bit because also part of what's um, causing the market to lift up is that the the worry about inflation in the US has cooled off a little bit. So um, part of what drove the market down and has absolutely sent um, tech stocks to the doghouse is the idea of the, the central banks having to yank up interest rates really high to cool off inflation. Um, now, that has moderated a little bit. Now, I made the case in a recent issue of Australian Small Cap Investigator that now's a good time to start looking at property stocks because th- these have all been spanked since about August last year. Um, and the recent sell-off in the market just drove them down even further. If, if the uh, read of the market at the moment is correct, that inflation is cooling off, then that will take some of the pressure off those stocks. So if you're looking for longer-term ideas, um, I reckon the property sector is a pretty on the share market. I'm talking about uh, it's a pretty good one to start digging around, but it will take a while for for that for those I think to to heat up. So as I say, there as a sort of long term idea, ones that pay dividends uh, worth uh, investigating. And another reason is uh, comes from uh, one of the Reserve Bank speeches that came out uh, either this week or last week. I can't remember. Um, by a lady uh, from memory called Lucy Ellis. Now, let me tell you, these RBA speeches can be a little bit dry. Um, <clears throat> actually, now that I think about it, I'll just go over to Remember when I had to rev up the audience to that guy that had done a speech for the RBA? Roll the clip of the lengths I had to go to to get the crowd engaged again. To elaborate on point 102. Here, read this. It's an emergency. His strong, manly hands probed every crevice 
of her silken femininity. Their undulating bodies writhing in a sensual rhythm as he thrust his purple-headed warrior into her quivering mound of love pudding. As you can see, it, it was a really you know, tough crowd. That's how boring these RBA speeches can be. But they can give you useful information. <laughs> Lucy Ellis is saying that she expects uh, immigration into Australia to start up again by 2024. Now, that, uh, I shouldn't say start up, to, to reach its previous high levels that it was back in 2024. Now, that jumped out at me because obviously we have building industry under pressure at the moment. They can't get materials. Hard for them to get labour. The, they've got the approvals as such, but the build times are blowing out. So it's only natural that they're going to get absorbed and the, uh, as people are buying uh, now, and the situation could become a bit more stretched. Now, in the past on the podcast, we've spoken about the land cycle, which theoretically should peak um, around 2026. So you can see that if immigration does come back in 2024 uh, in a powerful way, that, that will kind of juice the market um, to what should be a, uh, a peak um, and, and likely a, a big peak. Um, so the, And if you know your cycle history, that usually presages uh, some sort of crash, at least in the financial markets. What my uh, old real estate cycle guru uh, mate used to call a land-led uh, crash. Now, that's a very nice segue into this book, which you can see here called The Luckier Country, which is uh, done by a guy called Anthony Gill. He wrote it. He self-published it. He's put it out there. Reason being is once you dig into this um, cycle, you realise all the negative consequences come from it. Well, one of those is very high debt levels, which Australians now carry. We know that private debt is very high in Australia um, because we're all hooked to, um, to our mortgages and because we have high land prices, high ha house prices, we have no choice but to, to do that. And then, of course, you have the, um, the banking system creating all this debt, which makes money for them. Um, so you have lots of what's called unproductive credit sitting on the real estate market. So if you do get a downturn in the real estate market, it usually drags the banks down. When all that collapses, that usually takes down all the state revenue. Now, if you follow the financial press, you know that all the states have, uh, except WA really, have run big deficits to cover the COVID um, shutdowns, et cetera, kind of pushing out the the problems to the future, the federal government has now got a trillion dollars worth of debt. So Australia is saturated in debt. And part of Anthony's book is explaining like if we just had a proper tax system or what he views as a proper tax system and what most classical economists, which unfortunately are all dead for 200 years, would have said would make a great tax system, um, we're going to get this cycle and this consequence. So he he he's put the book down to uh, put the ideas out there and try and bring these issues to attention. From my own experience, uh, having talked about these for 10 years, lots of people have talked uh, talked to uh, Fred Harrison, who uh, I've had on podcasts in the past, has talked about it for 40 years. Um, and unfortunately, it's just the, the, odds, of, the odds are stacked against uh, anything uh, really um, happening here. But Anthony's stuck his flag in the in the ground and God bless him for having a crack. So I got him on the line because I wanted to talk about how he, what, you know, what led him to 
bring the book into existence and and why he was so passionate about it. So here he is, Anthony Gill, describing uh, his book, The Luckier Country. All right, today we're talking with Anthony Gill. I've got his book here, which is called The Luckier Country, and a fantastic read with lots of important ideas. And I wanted to get him on to, to talk through those because they're very important for not only the uh, investment markets, but m- much more importantly for the country. So, Anthony, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Callum. Can you tell us, it's no easy thing to write a book. So what what got you to sit down and do it and go through the, the torture? You know, as a writer, writing is not always so easy um, to get it out. What? How did the book come about? Well, when you've been around for as long as I have, you start to see governments come and go, recessions come and go, property booms and busts, politicians talk the talk, and uh, nothing really changes, in the short term anyway. In the longer term, you do have structural changes, slow changes over decades, like for example, the decline of Australian manufacturing or women entering the workforce. But by and large, it's not talked about a lot in the media. And, uh, and people don't really notice it in their day-to-day. But I noticed that things were happening. House prices going up, for example. And it got me thinking about the reasons why house prices increase. Do they go up at all? Um, The answer is yes, they do go up in excessive CPI and excessive wages. And so as I looked into it more and more and learnt more and more, I began to try to talk to family and friends about some of the ideas that I was toying with and learning about. And a funny thing happened. Their eyes just glazed over, and I hadn't even covered 1% of the things I wanted to talk about. And uh, the conversation always moved on to more stimulating subjects. So people really didn't sort of care about it. And those who did care about the topics that I was talking about, um, very quickly the conclusion that was come to was, well, yeah, but what can we do about it? Nothing. So I thought, well, history generally turns at the point of a gun. People generally change when there's a crisis. And uh, I believe that there's an economic crisis coming for separate reasons. But, and I was prepared to sort of work with that timing and, and write something then. But then COVID popped up and I found myself stood down for a couple of years. And I thought, well, now's the time. So I put it all Something in good came of it then. Yeah, absolutely. Something good came of it. Yeah. So go back to the beginning just for a moment. So when you're looking at this, why do house prices go up? Where did you find first? Obviously, at some point you came to Henry George and, and, and that work, I presume. Did you find someone in the financial world or the not-for-profit world or, or something that Gave you a clue about what trail to to follow? Well, Phil Anderson was the main influence with his book, The Secret Lives of Banking and Real Estate. 
And that got me going and it sort of led me to Henry George's ideas and the property cycle. And, and so it all, it all started there. And, uh, yeah, so. Well, we share a common bond then because I, I came, I worked with Phil for many years and I came to those ideas through him as well. Yes, he wrote a very good book, very detailed. And there would I've have been here behind me somewhere. There would have been a lot of torture in that book for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he always made a point in his speeches of, of always saying, you know, I did a lot of that research when, when Amazon wasn't around. You know, you had to go to the library or order it from yeah, some yeah. obscure bookseller. <laughs> I think it was torturous for him. <laughs> but well, thank, thankful uh, that he did do it. Um, okay, so do you want to talk about that cycle in itself? So someone listening to this is like, okay, well, what's what exactly is the problem here? Why do house prices go up and why is that a bad thing? Okay, well, um, Phil argued very well that the house prices follow an 18.6-year cycle, I think it is. Um, uh, four years sort of flat, seven years up, a mid-cycle, a mid year where there's a bit of a slowdown and another seven years up and then it falls flat for four years again. And, uh, and so based on the last property bust we had in the, the GFC, I thought, you know, okay, 2026 might be the time, 2026, 2027, where that crisis would have appeared. But uh, we had the COVID thing, so Yes, I jumped in, and um, and and learnt a lot in the course of writing my book. So much so that the two house drive, the two main drivers of house prices, that uh, I think are driving prices, are bank lending into the housing sector, and speculation by buyers. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, they're the two main drivers. Now we've had. Lots and lots of reports, and uh, by government and non-government organisations about what to do about housing, the cost of housing, and so on and so on. Hundreds of pages, and I, I don't quote from them, but I do cite some of those reports in my book, and yet nothing changes. And I came to the conclusion that it's so bank lending and speculation in property is so endemic in our economic system in Australia that people don't see it. They can't see the, the wood for the trees. And uh, they just, it's too big for any one politician. Or well, I remember thing. speaking to Fred Harrison about this, who was before Phil in, in sort of looking at this 18-year cycle, and, and he says the problem now worldwide is the culture. The culture now is everyone assumes that it's kind of all good that we bid up housing or land as, as it is and we make a bit of money out of it and, and that, but it brings all these uh, external costs that are massive and that's part of what you're talking about, isn't it? It is. And uh, the extension to that is I think, well, I argue that we need to change our relationship with the land. Uh, it, it can't be the economic gains from the land, the gains that people make while they sleep, as has often been mentioned, can't be quarantined. They can't be fenced off to, to some and not others because we've reached the situation now where there's a, 
a large cohort of society who find it very difficult to buy houses and it's, it's unfair. It's been a generational shift and my generation have perhaps benefited from property prices, property prices rising, but uh, the younger generations, uh, they're severely disadvantaged. Yeah, well, I mean, where I am in Melbourne, you can see around us all the big old blocks uh, uh, bought and split into into two or three. Uh, and so obviously the generations coming through are going to grow up in townhouses and that without gardens and all that type of thing. But that's just one externality. Of course, you bring up in the book bank lending, which is also very important. So as you say, the more the banking sector lends against real estate, the higher it goes. But of course, the more vulnerable the banks become to a real estate downturn, which uh, history shows always turn down at some point. Then we end up with a government who's stuck with a bankrupt banking system, which then has to turn around and bail them out, which is what happened in America uh, in 2008. So then we get national debt going up and up and up and things get more and more fragile. So um, it's just a topic that it plays into so many different things. But as you say, there's so many vested interests in it. Obviously, from the mortgage industry to brokers to real estate agents, this whole structure is built around this idea of buying and selling land uh, to make easy money out of it. Do you have any hope that that system can change at all? Well, you're absolutely correct. There's a huge industry sort of living from that cycle of bank lending into real estate. And it's only natural because that's where the money is. So that's where the people are going to gravitate to in the businesses. And the extent of it is huge. And it's completely off the books, but it's a stimulus every year into the economy. Uh, I've got data in the book which shows that on average bank lending is injects $200 billion a year into the economy just increasing the money supply and, uh, and it's injected into the narrow housing segment every year for the last 20 years. And it's a huge amount of money. And to give you an example of to, uh, to try and show you how large an amount of money it is, the total federal government budget is about $2,000 billion. So $200 billion is 10% of that. It's like the government is running a 10% deficit year on year on year and squirting that money into a very narrow segment of the economy. It's no wonder house prices are going up. When you first started your research into this, did you um, have that kind of necessary jump where you go, oh, banks don't actually lend deposits, they're actually just creating this out of nothing? Was that like a head flip for you? It took me a long while to think about, you know, you hear about money being created from nothing. Um, and in its purest form, the central banks do that. When, when um, they cover the government spending or they, uh, yeah, cover the government spending, yeah. they, they do create money purely out of nothing. The banks, by the process of their lending, increase, and I use the, the measure in the book as M3, the stock of money, M3, 
they increase the stock of money, not intentionally, but just as a side effect, if you like, of their lending. So it took me a long while to, I had to think carefully about how money was created, but bank lending does increase the M3 money supply. And the M3 money supply, as that goes up, so too the house prices. They are very closely correlated. And uh, the exact mechanism of how that occurs, I've shown in Chapter 5, I talk about money and, and try and present it in different ways that people may not have thought of. And I actually come up with, it's a bit nerdy, but bank balance sheets, which I took from the RBA, about which side of their accounting ledger their, their deposits go on and their loans go on and mm. how it is picked up in the M3 money supply. But when you look at the, the M3 money supply going up over the last 30 years, and look at the house prices going up, they're very closely correlated. So Absolutely. Can, um, and it's, it's such a wonderful thing. Once you sort of dig into all this stuff, you realise you sort of see the system for what it is. It's like, in some ways, it's so simple. Uh, but, yeah, as you say, if you're just going about your daily business and you're not interested in these topics, you don't really ever see it like that. It just uh, it's kind of an insidious sort of thing that we sort of assume that's the way it has to be. And of course, your book's called The Luckier Country. So we've, and we're sort of talking about Australia in this context, but it's true of Britain and America and well, the, this overall system. So to bring it the positive side, what, what changes do you want to see um, to bring about a, a fair Australia? Okay. All right. Well, I, I do talk about some reforms to banking. Talk about some reforms to Parliament. I talk about some taxation reforms. I talk about what I call a citizen's dividend. And I talk about preparing for the next crisis, and which can come along. So there's a whole raft of measures, and really they all come together. They're all interrelated. You can't really cherry pick one and uh, at the expense of the others because they all work together. But would you like and me so to go to any of those? Is it fair to say that your vision accords with that Henry George idea of, of taking taxes off people's genuine income and putting it onto natural resources such as land, i.e. the real estate market? Okay, that's taxation reform and you're absolutely correct. Carl Fitzgerald from um, Prosper Organisation wrote a paper some years ago about how the total funding of the government could be achieved through taxation of land and natural resources. And this is the only fair tax because uh, to tax labour or capital puts a drag on the economy. And uh, the more you tax those labour and capital, you, you, you're pulling back on the economy. But taxing land and natural resources is a fair tax for all sorts of reasons. And I could bang them off, but it's essentially money for nothing that people get. And it belongs to society. It belongs to everyone. It just doesn't belong to those who have 
um, the government granted licenses or privileges to have a monopoly on that particular resource. Absolutely. So that was taxation. Um, being, for example, social spending via the government is captured in you know private hands wherever it is done. So a new hospital, everyone pays for the hospital, but the benefit is captured in the in the nearby real estate. So. Uh, do you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but Malcolm Turnbull started to push this agenda uh, early on in his prime ministership. Were you following that when he started to talk about value capture around the government infrastructure projects? Um, no, I wasn't. It's all right. It didn't last very long. <laughs> Someone <laughs> shut him up or something shut him up. But uh, no, so I was, all I meant was that I think at a government level, this is known, and certainly in the Henry Tax Review, he's he did that and and made the very similar case. And of course, nothing's ever been done about it. But then he still says like the tax base needs to be uh, shifted to to where it belongs. Um, this is an investment podcast, so obviously the component of this, obviously we want a fair Australia in that. But when we look at the policies from the the governments that are coming up for grabs, we had Labor come out and say that they. They will do the uh, shared deposit kind of equity scheme for new home buyers. Is that just another example for you of of solutions that won't work? Trying to put band aids on this gaping wound. Well, the more you help people into real estate, the more you make um, people's purchasing power greater, and the more you're going to drive up prices. It, it it's not addressing the root cause of of the problem. So if you just allow people to, to bid up the prices, the prices are going to be bid up. If you allow the banks to lend more um, with a, a lower deposit, the prices are going to be bid up. If you give people money to spend on real estate, the prices are going to be bid up. That's just the current system. You need to take away the speculative gains that are possible from real estate and you need to stop spending so much money or, or creating so much money through the bank's creation of money when they lend into such a narrow segment. And interestingly enough, the latest statistics from the ABS is investors are starting to come back into the, the real estate market um, where they were uh, sort of the Royal Commission um, took a lot of steam out of that component of the, the real estate market, but they're coming back because obviously they can see the gains uh, that have come about since 2020 and the rents are rising and naturally it's attracting capital again. So now we have the case um, of, you know, well, say higher income earners allocating their investment capital to, to properties. And of course that bids up the, the uh, property prices and puts first home buyers, low income earners uh, further out of the game. Uh, so again, that's just another one of those negative externalities that um, what's good for one person, an investor, is terrible for someone trying to buy a house, whatever it was. Um, obviously, as I said earlier, this is an investment po podcast. So you then agree with Phil and, and that dynamic that we are building ourselves towards a situation where at some point the real estate market will break. And What, what you just described is simply the property cycle turning before our eyes. Investors will come back in and property prices will go up until such time as we get a credit-induced bust and it's a serious bust when the value of the property falls below what the banks lent for it. 
that's when the blood will be in the streets and um, you know that's the serious bust and uh, and away it goes again so well the interesting thing for me is we saw the 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 threat of this during COVID. obviously you can't shut down everyone's income and job uh and expect the whole system to to hold together that's why the rba had to step in so aggressively with the QE and the government um, paid out JobKeeper to, to keep people on the payroll and that type of thing. But, of course, the 2020 experience has ratcheted up the federal debt and the state debt that you mentioned how much they spend already anyway. Mm. Uh, so next time we come around, all that um, discretion that Australia had from having a relatively low debt, at least federally, uh, we're running up the bill uh, in 2020 and, come 2027, we'll be in the same situation, in a worse um, fiscal situation. Uh, do you see, Is are you following the, the deficits as well with this sort of worry in mind? Uh, well, you're right. The deficits on the federal government point of view, um, you know, we, we kicked it up a little bit with um, the GFC back in 2008, 2009. And then COVID came along and kicked it up again. In fact, the GFC wiped out 10 years of very determinedly paying off the debt by Howard and Costello. Absolutely, um, yeah. From um, 1996 to 2006. They got down to zero net debt, and they were very determined to do that. And uh, it took them 10 years. And in the next eight years, we had... COVID and, oh, sorry, we, we had the GFC and then the GFC destroyed what Howard and Costello took 10 years to, to do, to pay off the debt. And that was the first punch and the second punch was COVID. And now we're in a situation where I argue in my book that we will never be able to pay off the debt, at least not in our lifetimes. And uh, and I use Howard and Costello's effort over their 10-year period and, and extrapolate it and say, with the debt we've got now, it'll take out to um, 2049 to, to, to pay off the current debt. And uh, we don't know what's going to have to happen to interest rates or mm. pandemics or wars or floods, droughts. You know, it's just so far out into the future that, it's meaningless. So you could effectively say we're never, ever going to be paying off our debt. But some people still think that we need to, and this is where the danger is, we need to hike up taxes to pay down our debt. And uh, the austerity that that would inflict upon future generations would just be cruel. And so we, we really need to accept that our circumstances are never going to go back to pay having zero debt, and we need to be on the front foot about deciding where to go from here because things have irrevocably changed. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned the GFC in there, and, of course, that I mean, we call it the GFC, but uh, that was an 18-year land-induced land credit bust um, that we're still, we're still living with. Um, so I think this is the most important idea that you can know as an investor because it just feeds into so many different areas and uh, it's something you have to be aware of. 
I mean, it's laughable. I mean, Treasurer Frydenberg, of course, is coming out saying, you know, we'll we'll pay down the debt, but um, and we'll get back into the budget. You know, I forget the term that he used now. But of course, governments are sitting on an unstable system, and and their revenue is it could be so simple in a way if they just put it where it belonged, we wouldn't have this boom bust cycle. So it's a very all I'm saying is if you're listening to this, this is a very important idea. Lots of important issues uh, uh, to think about. So the book you can get on Amazon. We'll put a link in at the bottom. Um, it's very well written. Not difficult. Not a demanding book in terms of being dense and and thick. So it's you can grasp the issues fairly quickly. And as I say, if you you don't kind of in a way you don't have a choice but to to engage with these issues because it's not just a financial thing as you say it's a social thing so if you've got kids looking for houses or you're retiring and you and you need your equity in your home and, and all is it sustainable the, the government spending and all this type of thing it all feeds into this this nexus and uh you don't get good coverage of it in the mainstream like in terms of your reading material um do you think that this these issues that uh, all swirl around this uh, adequately covered at all? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, it's an interesting thing how I came to my conclusions. Uh, it was all data-driven. I got most of my data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics or the Reserve Bank of Australia, some from the OECD, and I looked at charts of what has been because charts don't lie. I'm not a trained economist, but I do know how to read a chart. And I interpreted what the charts were saying and, uh, and drew my conclusions about if we kept going, this is what's going to happen and why we need to change. And the engineering approach, you figure out how something works. And once you understand that, you can then fix it. But until you know how it works, you can't really fix it. You're just fiddling around the edges. And effectively, you know, the current election campaign we have, it's just fiddling around the edges. You've got the Reserve Bank on one hand trying to do what it can to reduce inflation. So it, it's only got one tool, a hammer. And when you've only got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, you know, if inflation's rising, regardless of the reason, you raise interest rates. And then you've got the, the politicians going out and um, spending money to buy, buy votes, which is stimulatory. So you've got the Reserve Bank trying to suppress the economy and the politicians are going out buying votes, stimulating the economy. So, you know, there's no direction. There's no – it's not a good way to – Not cohesive, no. And, in fact, uh, <laughs> nobody remembers, but the, the government last election – uh, I think it was last week, put through the tax cuts anyway. So the scheduled tax cuts uh, uh, that are due to kick in, uh, I think it's from 2023, 2024, but I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, the point being that while the Reserve Bank's raising rates to take money away from consumers, they'll be cutting tax rates to give it straight back to them. So as you say, they're, they're completely not working together in any, in any logical way whatsoever. So, but again, studying these issues allows you to see that, and and if you if you don't, you 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 will miss the significance of those tax cuts, which are going to, as you say, put more purchasing power into people's hands, uh, which will then get fed back into the land price. So, uh, 
I don't think we need to go any deeper into it. I think the book has the answers and, and what you've done, the research that you've done, the conclusions that you've drawn. So if you are interested, um, grab a copy of it. And uh, thank you for coming on. Um, I think you've done, you know, a good service because, as you say, you did it to get the ideas out there. It's not a money-making uh, um, thing for you. Is that fair to say? Well, my measure of success would be if some of these ideas get into the public debate. That's, uh, that's all I could ask. I, I'd then consider that would be successful. Yeah. All right, beauty. Well, we'll see, see if we can get any response for you from this, this discussion and, and uh, we'll pick up with you again sometime. So thanks for coming on the show and uh, it was a pleasure to, to talk with you and, and read your book. Thanks, Colin. <laughs>